This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we walk through three centuries to see the great and famous East-West Schism, look at the idea of icons, and meet Charlemagne as a major character in this era of history. Yeah. Now, a couple just uh, before we even get started, just a few reminders have been thrown out. Number one, there's always a presentation, at least one, in this case, uh, one timeline, one page of timelines we've created for you. Um, just to remind you, these aren't tried to be, we're not trying to be exact as far as making them to scale or perfectly representing dates or anything like that. We're trying to uh, just give the general idea, the general concept. And I also just want to, this is going to be one of those episodes, we're going to do a huge block of history and really only focus on bits and pieces. And there are going to be some of you that just feel like there could have been so much more we could have discussed or so much more depth or nuance to those things. Remember that we're trying to give a a wide a wide breadth, a 10,000-foot view. What are the big ideas? Because we are trying to get somewhere with Session 5. This is not our session of ex, uh, of expertise. This is not what the Bema podcast and Bema discipleship thrives on. This is not you know, we're not going to claim to be experts in all these things. And there's probably a million other podcasts that you could dive in or maybe need to create yourselves to go into some of these things. But we're just going to try to give some big, large, and, and there's always the case, there's always a chance that I'm going to oversimplify something in a way that we have lots of different listeners um, to our podcast. We have people from, we're going to get into the East-West Schism today, Brent just told us. And we have people that listen from the more Eastern side of that schism. The the Eastern Orthodox traditions. We have a handful of listeners. I've gotten a handful of emails from them. Um, I don't know if they're on the same group or if we got multiple groups, but um, it, the, we're coming at it from probably a more Western perspective, uh, and and we're certainly not going to be taking a Western side. <laughs> if you know anything about me, I'm be pretty cynical of what we're talking about here. But um, yeah, just just know that this is a big, wide conversation and. We're not going to try to get any in-depth detail. Anything else you need to say before we dive in, Brent? Uh, that should do it. That should do it. I look forward to it. Excellent. Well, so do I. Here we go. All right, the next item that leads to major disagreement seems to be the theme of Christian church history is disagreements. Disagreements, yes. Which which disagreement are we talking about at this point in history? Well, the next disagreement and argument in the Byzantine church is the use of images and what we're going to... Talk about icons, images and icons, often referred to as the iconoclastic controversy. The iconoclastic controversy. I wonder if there's a Wikipedia article for that, Brent. Should we link that? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Brent's going to go dig it up. Uh, This period of history would eventually put an end to the Byzantine period, at least as it's concerned with the papacy and the Holy Roman Church. Uh, Some would use the Byzantine Empire all the way to the Ottoman period. Uh, I don't find this particularly useful for our purposes here in our discussion. So, for our discussion, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna shift to another period of history and talk about it in a different way. The controversy stemmed from a major difference in mindsets: the Eastern worldview versus the Western worldview. Hopefully, that's a familiar distinction to our listeners, Brent. If you've never heard of this discussion before, um, you could listen to it on uh, our intro podcast, episode zero. Episode zero of the Baymont Podcast. I would, if you've stumbled into session five without listening to our previous sessions, 
this is not the podcast you're looking for. Not yet, anyway. Um, but uh, it's also been a long time for a lot of us. If you were with us all the way back in 2016, it's been a long time since we did the introduction discussion. So we're going to link that in the show notes down below. And uh, you'll find that uh, episode, episode zero, introduction, linked there. And that's where we talk about what's the difference between East versus Western uh, perspectives. Uh, the two worlds interact with information, the Eastern world, the Western world. They interact with information and experiences in a completely different way. Neither one is more right or more wrong. They're just simply different. As the Greeks rose to power and the Western world came to dominate Europe and eventually spread all over the globe, this controversy was bound to happen. Ironically, the uh, the Byzantine Empire was the more Greek uh, of the of the Roman world, sure. And so when the western portion of Roman uh, Rome fell, the eastern empire sort of lived on, but it was very Greek. Absolutely, yeah, so it has great, like all yes. this western thought. Yes, but it has this sort of eastern flavor to it. Absolutely, like when you think about we we talked at some point about how the Greek world, like Lysimachus, um, willed their empire to Rome, and that was a very Greek empire. So we always made a distinction between the Roman Empire of the far west of like Rome, like Italy, Rome, and then like there's Asia and Asia Minor, which are much more Greco in their Roman, Greco-Roman versus just like Roman-Roman or Greco. Another way to distinguish between would be between Greco-Roman and Greco-Asian would be another way to reference that. But yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. It's a great point. So the relevant difference between the worlds for our conversation here is how they communicate truth. If you remember, Brent, all the way back in episode zero, we talked about how East versus West communicated truth differently. The Westerner communicates truth with words, definitions, and prose. One can see this world at work clearly in the early stages of Christendom as we form creeds and doctrinal statements to be circulated throughout the empire. However, there is another side of the world. That communicates truth using, what did the Easterner use? Not words and definitions, but pictures, images. Pictures and images, absolutely. So this is the Eastern world of the Bible. In the world of the Bible, we had preserved the text in a culture that was committing it to memory. We had an education system that we talked about with synagogue that was dedicated uh, to the preservation of the text within its own culture and subculture. When one maintained the text and used images to convey its truth, this wasn't nearly as problematic. But once we kicked out that Jewish perspective, we needed to find out how to preserve the text we were in danger of losing. Now, I certainly don't mean that the text, uh, I'm not talking about the text and its physicality. The monastic movements were working hard to preserve the physical written text like the Essenes would have. But we have to remember that we are dealing with a world that hasn't seen the invention of what, Brent? Uh, the printing press. Yes. We don't have multiple copies of books. We don't have a printing press. So how do you preserve the text in a world that has no distribution of printing and is mostly illiterate? And for that matter, in the churches, they didn't even use the common language to, to go over Bingo. the scriptures. Absolutely. They're using which language? Uh, typ typically Latin, although I guess in the Byzantine Empire it would be, be Greek. Sure. So yeah, absolutely. The Western world wrote down what the text said, and we call it doctrine. The Eastern world drew images and pictures to help them remember the content, and these were called icons. So both worlds are trying to help, instead of just preserving the text itself 
in its remembered spoken form. We're trying to remember what the text said. We don't have the text in us like the Jews did, so we're trying to remember what the text said and preserve the text that way. So we're coming up with with doctrine. We're coming up with Christian dogma, and we're trying to preserve that doctrine. The Western world is literally preserving that doctrine by writing it down. The Eastern world is preserving that doctrine by painting pictures and icons. Uh, these ideas were called icons. The Western world did not like icons. Uh, one can understand the confusion. Uh, most of our listeners, not all of them, we have pointed that out already. We do have people all over the globe listening to our podcast, but most of our listeners are are likely Western-minded. If they found themselves, for instance, lost in an Eastern Orthodox church on some Sunday morning, They might be shocked to see people enjoying incense and praying at stations where they kneel in front of a picture or a statue, an icon. To the Westerner, this seems to look like what, Brent? What does this look like? Blatant idolatry. Idolatry. The kneeling congregant is obviously worshiping the icon. But this is a misunderstanding of the Eastern worldview. No Eastern worshiper sees themselves as worshiping the icon itself. They are worshiping the God who lies behind the story that the icon represents. For the record, I would recommend uh, experiencing an Eastern Orthodox church at some point if you have not. I had some good friends in high school who were Eastern Orthodox, and I uh, was able to go to church with them a few times and had some very moving experiences. Absolutely. Uh, When I traveled to Old City, Jerusalem, some of our Eastern Orthodox brothers, I just have learned so much from them. Uh, so many different ways. They just they view the things differently. They don't they don't worship the. Uh, I'm going to have fun with this comment. They don't worship the icon any more than you worship the doctrine. Which, granted, in our Western world, that's <laughs> probably a fine line. But nevertheless, you get the idea. While a Westerner listen, listens to a lecture, a sermon, and reads a book, the text. The Easterner hears a different kind of lecture. They hear the narrative and reads a different kind of book, the icon. In fact, the Easterner, and that doesn't mean that they don't have the Bible or read the text, with it. not at all, not at all. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm talking about big ideas, generalities. In fact, the Easterner could just as easily accuse the Westerner of drifting away from the Eastern world of the Bible and engaging in a new kind of doctrinal idolatry. Hence what I was hinting at a moment ago. Nevertheless, this controversy took its toll on Christendom, and the next 250 years would be a battle to hold a splintering kingdom together in unity. With the ending of the Byzantine papacy, the Holy Roman Church, I'd use that term with respect and also loosely, with the ending of the Byzantine papacy, the Holy Roman Church would find moments of hope in new leadership throughout this era. People like Boniface, would help unite order under a struggling papacy, as would many others. And Boniface is a great character. Take your time. Go look up Boniface and the contributions he made to Christendom. So here's a question. Okay. Uh, as Rome sort of fell away in the West, and Latin was no longer the default language throughout the entire area, the text remained in Latin. So people would move farther away from being able to read it and understand it. So... 
in the east, you have the icons, and maybe you can't um, maybe you can't read the text in your native language, but you can see the icons and you can understand the stories. What was the West doing at this time? Like, was anyone reading it besides the the high level scholarly elites? That's going to show up in one of our next episodes quite a bit. At this point, you have yeah, and 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 at this point, the scholarly elite is not quite the right phrase to use because scholasticism is going to show up during the period of the Crusades. We'll talk about that in the next episode. Okay. Um, so that is, you're actually right on the, your question's really well-timed. You're right on the verge of that. That is coming. The reality is very real. It's just not quite, at this point in history, you wouldn't call it scholarly. You would call it, um, there are definitely clergy. There are definitely, um, church leaders. There are definitely trained theologians. You have a group of people that are being trained in in a very practical way they've given their life to this so they're the ones that know they're the ones that have the the knowledge whether they can read or not many of them could many of them could not but they have the they they possess us on an intimate level and everybody else is obviously separated from that but in a very practical way they gotta they gotta go farm they gotta go apply their trade they they, they have to go survive does that answer your question uh yeah I mean, obviously, it's just a, a very big span of history that we're talking about here, yes. and we like yeah. what it's like from region to region is is going to vary and stuff. But and I think looking back on the last episode, uh, like the contributions of Gregory um, and church order and liturgy uh, would have felt like and seemed like and had been seen like just a huge step forward. And I'm not even arguing it's not. I think I think it probably was because you finally gave a, a shared liturgy to every believer. So even though they didn't ha- they didn't possess the knowledge of the text and those kind of things in the same way, the literacy rate's not there, you at least have a a, a shared Christian experience. Uh, That's a big deal. Uh, Gregory really changed the course of 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 Christian history in a lot of ways. Yeah, okay. So yeah, there are people like Boniface and others, obviously lots of others, and I'm probably leaving out some of people's, you know, some of some folks' favorite heroes. But there are people like Boniface, all those kind of things. But one of the one of the more influential names that uh, we'll talk about today is the uh, the name of Charlemagne. Uh, one could look at Charlemagne with either critical eyes or eyes of admiration. But one thing is for sure, Charlemagne is often called the father of the West, the father of the West for uniting the Western Church unlike anybody had since the days of Constantine. Charlemagne led the church on a path of productive renaissance, urging intellectual and spiritual revitalization. While Middle Ages is certainly seen as a dark time, we're going to talk about that more in the next episode, um, those Middle Ages are not seen as typically a really bright time of church history. Uh, The work of Charlemagne may be seen as a catalyst for the progress made during that era. and it, in a lot of ways, this was a, a setup to the scientific revolution. There's a book we're going to link in our show notes, um, uh, the Genesis of Science. Is that right? Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. And and I wouldn't say that I like was just amazingly totally in love with that book, but I thought it was a great book. And one of its points was these dark ages that we refer to in Christian history really weren't dark at all. They were setting up the scientific revolution, which brought so much other different kinds of progress. We could critique that very heavily, but they're far from just like this dumb, dark age of Christian history. There's actually a ton of things going on here. So you can read that book for some 
Um, interesting perspective. I thought it was good. Hannum's the uh, author there. So uh, eventually, though, this this unity that Charlemagne brought and this pro- – and I remember this unity is a big deal because you're having the split between East and West, between Eastern Church and Western Church, and it kind of brings up this turmoil. So the unity that Charlemagne brought to the Western Christian world uh, was a big deal, um, uh, but that progress would not hold under the growing tension between the East and the West. Uh, with an empire as big as Rome itself – the West was finding it impossible to control their Eastern brothers as they attempted to kick against the goads of Western progress. So at the turn of the first millennium, the great East-West schism took place, tearing Christendom into what would be known as the Roman Church of the West and the Eastern Orthodox Church, obviously of the East. As the Western Church banked on the power of the papacy, and what they saw as God-ordained authority, they made demands of their Eastern brothers. These demands were refused and often denounced. And the traditional date for the start of the schism is 1054. Yes. But it wasn't necessarily finalized until about 1472. So this is a, an, ongoing, an ongoing battle between East and West. Yes, and that's a great example of one of those church history nuances where... Um, yeah, you can get lost in those details. I don't even know if I would. That's really taken a, like, I don't even know if I would like that statement. Um, not from Brent Billings. I mean, I'm fine with my good friend Brent here, but <laughs> I'm sure you're picking that up from somewhere. And whoever made that statement about it being finalized in the 15th century, I don't know if I would word it that way. Yeah, what does that mean? What right. is it? like? right. Yes. Effectively what's happening. Right. But yeah, it's getting lost my, in a bunch my of My point is it's it's not necessarily a singular moment where all of a sudden you snap and, and the churches are divided. Yeah, yeah. That that's that's relatively true. Yeah, absolutely. The the, the big moment really is right there at ten, what did you say, ten fifty four? Ten fifty four, yeah. Eighty ten fifty four. Yeah. So I mean there is a pretty significant moment, but just the practicality of what does that mean when it's applied is quite interesting. The world uh at the time did not work the way it does today. Like Right. You don't have uh, news from the other side of the world uh, a minute after it happens Correct. like we do today. Right. Twitter is not helping you out in this case. So just the, the fact that half of the Christian empire simply denounced and tore away from the papal-led Church of the West, uh, it, le- it left that Western church in shock and terror. To many, it seemed as though Christendom could never survive. So we've talked about this term Christendom sure, uh, already, and I just yes. wanted to like present a couple of ideas about it. Okay. Uh, we did. We, but this is an important part because people have studied this from lots of different perspectives, and people view Christendom and church history in a very positive light, a very critical light, all that kind of – so we use these terms so differently. Before going through Bema, I wasn't really familiar with the term. I think I'd heard it maybe in passing reference a few times, but I'd never actually looked at it. Um, and so, yeah, I just thought it might be helpful to define it a little bit. Absolutely. So the, um, the new Oxford American dictionary says that Christendom is a dated term, uh, meaning the worldwide body or society of Christians. Sure. So absolutely. It's kind of like, it's a very generous, oh, and I don't mean that in a critical way. It's a very generous right. way to describe Christendom, just all of all the body of Christ. Yeah. Throughout the world. Right. Maybe a, a more dated term for the body of Christ. Sure. What, what we would say today is the body of Christ. Absolutely. Okay. So in the uh, church history in plain language, which we 
mentioned as one of our sources for this session. First episode of session five, went over some sources as one of them. I don't know if we would say we use it as our text here, but it's definitely a large con- uh, contributor to my work here in session five for sure. Uh, it says, in medieval theory, church and state were but two aspects of Christendom. The one representing Christian society organized to secure spiritual blessings. The other, the same society, united to safeguard justice and human welfare. Theoretically, church and state were in harmonious interplay, each aiming to secure the good of mankind. In fact, however, the Pope and Emperor were contestants. The ever-present question was, should the church rule the state or the state control the church? Absolutely. And, and a lot of people, when they hear Christendom, they hear simply the concept of church and state combined. Um, none of these things are right or wrong. Uh, I, I've, I pulled up the Wikipedia article on Christendom. Um, opening line, Christendom historically refers to the Christian world, Christian states, Christian majority countries, and the countries in which Christianity dominates or prevails. Um, skipping two paragraphs later, the term usually refers to the Middle Ages and to the early modern period during which the Christian world represented a geopolitical power that was juxtaposed with both the pagan and especially the Muslim world. Um, it's another take on it. There's all these different takes, and some people use the word, the, the word differently. Some people, when they think of church history, um, think about it in a very positive light. They think this is a history of Christianity. Christianity has been good for the planet. Christianity has been good for the world. Christianity is a good thing. I love Christianity. I love Christian history. I love church history. Um, and so some people use Christendom. They use it in a very positive way. Then there are others that view Christianity through a very critical lens. Um, and they, when they say Christendom, they definitely have a very negative connotation when they use it. I definitely lean not real heavily, but I lean much more in the latter of those two camps. I don't have this deep abiding love for Christian history. Um, Christendom, I, when I say that, I say it very intentionally, and I use it to refer to something with a slightly cynical, slightly critical, slightly negative connotation, because Christendom to me represents Christianity with imperial undertones, overtones, and underpinnings. Like, it's, it's grounded in an imperial reality. Started in Constantine, Christendom for me is actually what is in large part the problem. And that's kind of, we want to pose that question here in session four. How, how, how do you remember us posing the question here, Brent? Can you remember? I probably already ruined the question by uh, insinuating what my perspective is on it. But Like where, where did Christendom end? Oh, yes. That was one of the ways we had talked about it. Yeah. So where did Christendom begin? Where does Christendom end? Has Christendom ended? Is going to be one of the things that I, do we still have an imperial understanding, an imperial, and when I say imperial, I mean empire. The church, I very much love the church, the idea of this apostolic movement, um, first century, Judaic followers of Jesus within a Jewish context, within the, the context of synagogue and, and Asia and Asia Minor, taking their Judaism, informed by Jesus, illumined by the Christ and changing the world, bringing the kingdom of God crashing to earth. I'm very much in favor of that. I love that very much. Grafting the Gentiles in. Love it. Absolutely. Not a fan of, hey, give me the handle of the sword 
Now we're in charge. Uh, now we're going to write creeds. Now we're going to impose our way. Not a fan of that. And that's what I think of when I think of Christendom. That's not what I'm in love with. I, I want to think very critically about that. Um, I'm pretty cynical about that. I have no love affair with Christendom. Uh, I'm not sure Christendom ever, spoiler alert, I'm not sure Christendom ended. I think we still have Christendom today. Uh, even when we pulled church and state apart, I just think it just added some complexities and some nuances, but we still very, very much have Christendom. Um, so so those are, those are just some... And by the way, when I talk about the apostolic church, I am also not talking about... <laughs> I am also not talking about Messianic Judaism. I'm not talking about the Hebraic Roots movement. I'm not talking about those things either. I want to uh, very intentionally distinguish myself from that as much as I distinguish my, my perspective from, um, from, from Christendom. Uh, I want to look at this and understand this from a historical perspective, um, untethered to some tribal identity. I think all those groups, I think... Christendom and its many different forms, it's 38,000 different forms, uh, has a, a lot of problems that we're talking about right now. I think Hebraic Roots movement, I think Messianic Judaism has a whole nother set of problems rooted in a different part of history, pulling from different chapters of this story of Christendom, and has, has just as many problems. I don't say that to offend anybody. Uh, but to but to make sure make it clear that I'm not taking some side. I think many of our listeners listen to the podcast and they assume I'm coming from their side, identifying with their tribe. Not doing that. Nope. Nope. I have a tribe. I I definitely identify with it. I try to put that aside as much as possible. I'm just as biased as anybody else. So is Brent. That's the way it goes. But we're not trying to uh, give some subliminal message about which tribe has it correct. That's not what we're trying to do. There you go, Brent. Sounds good. How did we do today? I think we did pretty good. Yeah, a good half an hour discussion. Almost. Almost. Yeah. We'll end it there. We'll give people a couple extra minutes of time back and they can go uh, read one of the books we recommended or something. Hey, there we go. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on the Baymaw Podcast this week. We will talk to you again soon. <laughs>